0: Welcome to Code Recursive, where we bring you discussions with thought leaders in the world of software development. I am Adam, your host.
1: Hey, Dan, why aren't you allowed to use recursion? Because you're not allowed to use recursion. (laughs) Yeah, but but why not? Because you're not allowed to. (laughs) So it, it,
2: it, if you want your programs to correspond to proofs, then direct uses of actual recursion where something refers to itself corresponds to circular reasoning.
0: You can write more correct software and even rigorous mathematical proofs. Previous guests like Edward Brady and Stephanie Weirich have discussed some of the exciting things a dependent type system can do Miles Sabin said, Dependent Types are surely the future. This interview is going to get us ready for that future. Dan Friedman is famous for his little series of books, including The Little Schemer, The Little Prover, Little MLR, and so on. These books are held in high regard. Uh, Here's a quote about The Little Schemer from Amazon Book Review. Little Schemer teaches one thing, a thing that is very difficult to teach, a thing that every professional programmer should know, and it does it really well. So his latest book is called The Little Typer, and it's all about types, specifically dependent types. Dan's co-author is David Christensen, an Idris contributor and host of a podcast about type theory that is frankly way over my head. Uh, Together, they're going to teach us how the programming skills we already have can be used to develop rigorous mathematical proofs. Also, uh, stay tuned to the end of the episode and I'll give a little brief overview of how I worked through the book, Tips and Tricks. If you haven't subscribed to this podcast yet, I recommend you do so so that new episodes will be delivered automatically to you. Also, I've set up a Slack channel for the podcast. If you want to chat about this episode or any episodes or just chat with fellow listeners, you can join the Slack channel. You will find the link on the website. So Dan and David, uh, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having us on. Appreciate it. I have this book that you guys wrote, the Little Typer, all about dependent types. So I thought I would uh, start off by asking you guys, uh, what what are dependent types?
2: So dependent types are types that are able to contain ordinary programs. So we might, in a in a language like Haskell or something, you might have uh, a type list of a where a could be any old type, but in a. De- 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 in a dependently typed language, you could also have things other than types there. So you might say, like, the list of n a's, where N is the number of things in the list. And then your type system all of a sudden needs to know about numbers and what it means to do arithmetic on numbers. So, for example, appending two of these lists, then you'll be able to see in the type that the length of the output is the sum of the lengths of the inputs and that sort of thing.
0: Why is that useful?
2: So... That one is, is less useful than you might think, given how often it comes up as an example, just because it's such a, a good example. <laughs> but dependent types are useful because they allow you to write very precise types that say a lot more about your program than you'd otherwise be able to say.
1: Yeah, that one is, I think, the more important point. Um, and you know, languages like Agda or Idris um, have more types. But it's just more types um, that gives you this capability. Plus, you know, uh, industrial strength uh, underneath it. This we're trying very hard to make this book be a, a something that's relatively easy to to understand, to get the feel for what it means to be writing uh, programs with dependent types.
2: And Dependent types are also more about more than just writing down a, a, a very precise type. Like doing that is nice because you can get more help from your programming language implementation in writing your program and you can make really nice interactive environments on top of that. But it also the the kind of the other way that you can use a type system is as a logic for doing mathematics. And a dependent type system is a very rich expressive logic that lets you talk about all sorts of different things. So you can also go and do something that feels very much like writing a program, but you've actually proved a theorem, which I think is really fun.
1: Yeah, that is the coolest part. There's no question, in my mind anyway, that you can, you just have a program of a certain type. And if that type is thought of as a theorem, then that program is thought of as the proof and i just love that metaphor just love it
0: and dan um like a lot of your your previous books are about scheme which i guess isn't really a. it's it's not a language known for its type system i I guess so (laughs)
1: that's certainly true (laughs) (laughs) although racket does have a type system it uses something called occurrence types and um in fact, uh, we used a lot of the types uh, that are in Racket in order to implement our system.
0: So are you um, pro-types in general or, or just dependent types?
1: I'm so far only in the dependent types camp. I, I, I just like the idea that you can just write a type and, and prove it correct. I think that's fabulous. Because the language of types is much broader than the language that are used in more conventional languages, and I think that's that's. I, I'm still not a big fan. I'm um, partially because the programs that I wanted to write um, with types uh, it was impossible. In fact, there's published papers on um, the fact that you can't write what, what I call reflection. There are published papers that say you you can't use Hindley Miller types to, um, to prove properties that you want to prove. And, and that's one of the reasons why I like dependent types, because there doesn't seem to be a big circle you can draw around it that says you can't do this and stuff like that.
0: So you think that like, um, non-dependent types are, are limiting, but dependent types are, are empowering. Is that kind of the idea?
1: That's how I feel. I don't. I can't speak for David. <laughs> he he indeed is not speaking for me. There. I, I
2: I like programming lots of different ways, and I have fun in languages which either don't have types or just have one big type, depending on which philosophical camp you're in. Or those like you know, I write a lot of Haskell at work, and I think that's a lot of fun. And I do dependent types as well. I I, I like lots of ways to program.
0: I like types <laughs> also, um, dependent types. I find, I, I, I'm not quite sure how they work yet, but I'm working through your book. So hopefully by the end, it's all going to make sense. I hope so, so in, in the book, um, you, you introduce this, uh, language pie that you, that you created for yeah, the book. So
1: yes, specifically.
0: So what's the intent behind that?
2: So, the reason why we thought we needed to make our own language for this book rather than using sort of an off the shelf well developed language like cock or agda or idris or one of those was that those languages put a lot of effort into automating away all of the sort of parts that can be tedious or difficult or require understanding and in the interest of getting work done You're not sort of forced to confront the inner workings of the system until later on, and we thought that it's going to be easier to give a sort of very minimal language that people. And when I say easier, I mean actually more difficult. uh, Easier for you to learn things (laughs) by having to work hard at it. (laughs) Um, and additionally, it let us have an implementation. We'd, We'd initially hoped to have the entire implementation of the language be the last chapter of the book. Unfortunately we didn't manage to get it quite small enough, so we have quite a lot of description of how you would implement it. And then there's an online tutorial I wrote as well.
0: Oh, is it really? Yeah. About how it was how the language was created. Uh, well there's a tutorial if you want to make your own.
2: Oh. If you and if you want to understand the source code. You know, the source code of the language is freely available and anyone can download it and modify it and hack on it as they want. There's at least one variant dialect already in the wild, and I hope that there'll be a lot more in the future.
0: The the interesting thing is is because uh, I did look at the GitHub repo like it, it's not very big. Um, thank you.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so, thank David, by all means,
2: <laughs> we both worked on it. I know <laughs> Dan is a has very ex- exacting standards for simplicity and smallness of code that were very that are very useful when working on a project. So the actual the actual implementation up there is also about half of that code is sort of interactive user interface kind of stuff, right? So it includes some parts that are not really exposed and documented yet, but that I hope to make more public in the future for doing things like having editable PI code inside of a slide if you're doing a talk somewhere. So you can sort of edit code in front of people and watch the type checker respond. And it has plug, you know, a plugin for Dr. Racket so that you can put mouse, the mouse over expressions and see what their types are and those sorts of things. And the actual core of the system is, you know, as small as we could possibly make it. While well, some of those things are a little hairier just because dealing with graphical user interfaces requires just uh, more code.
0: And this language is um, like it. So the implementation is written in Racket and to, to use it. I downloaded Dr. Racket and I put like LangPy at the beginning and that was about it.
2: Mm-hmm. That's right. The Racket developers have a background in education, so they've got they've, they're very motivated to make things simple to set up and easy for to work on multiple machines and that sorts of thing.
0: Um, one thing I found uh, interesting about the language is just the the words it uses for things. Um, like instead of instead of having like a type annotation, you have like a claim. Um, was was there uh, was there reasons behind the the verbiage used in the language?
1: Well, yeah. (laughs) I mean, so,
2: yeah. (laughs) We've, so, we've, I think we've implemented this thing about, what do you, what do you say, Dan? 10 to 12 times and thrown them away? (laughs) Yeah.
1: Four or five, seven, I don't know, some ridiculously large number. But we originally had um, one expression that captured both the type and, and the, uh, and the program. And, uh, it was, it was getting clumsy and we finally, um, sat down and chatted about that and we changed it. Yeah. Um, to be with two different things. I don't think of a claim kind of as a type annotation, but more like we're trying to get a good expression that represents, uh, what the, um, theorem we want to prove, so to speak.
2: So claim is for, for those listening to this who haven't read the book or, or worked with Pi. Um, in Pi, if you want to do a top level definition, the first thing you do is you use the language, the keyword claim, and then you put claim and then the name and then the type. And then later you define and then the name and then some expression which should have that type. And so initially we had one way of introducing a definition where you put down the type and the program together. And it just got to be too big in the book and it turned out to be better for the writing. If we could separate the two from each other.
1: You know, these little boxes can be quite a, uh, a challenge yeah. <laughs> that are in the little books.
0: Yeah, I bet. Um, so this, this is actually the first time that I've, uh, that I've read, uh, I got, I, I bought both the little typer and the little schemer. Um, and, uh, I was working through them, so this is my first introduction to that to that format, and I thought it was it was super fun. So, where does this uh, like so for for people who aren't familiar? um, It it has kind of a dialogue format where where you're kind of talking back and forth and uh, and learning about things in a very uh, iterative fashion. So, where does that structure come from?
1: Well, I used to be a professor of public policy before I got my doctorate. And um, I was teaching the uh, students at the Lyndon Mays Johnson School of Public Affairs. And um, one day the students said, can, can we uh, do something together on this? And I said, sure. And we, I, I grabbed a room and we worked for a solid week and we wrote The Little Lisper by walking from one, one end of the room to the other where there was a blackboard and people were chiming in with different things. Uh, for example, I really can't remember um, when we decided to put in the food, but it certainly was by somebody <laughs> in the room, in that room. It may have been me. I couldn't possibly remember it. It was 1973 when we wrote it and 74 when it came out. But um, And it was all done on an IBM Selectric <laughs> And there's a lot of other stories to go with that, but I'll save that for <laughs> something a mo- little more interesting. But yeah, it was quite a uh, a task back then. Uh, um, I didn't even type it; someone else typed it in in the IBM Selectric. I like
0: the like uh, it. It gave me a good sense for like like. Uh, to be honest, I found some parts. Uh, I'm working through the book, so I have a book. I have a book. Mark here on page one fifty one, but I've scanned through a little bit further. I've jumped ahead a little bit, even though don't the book do that. said not to.
1: Don't <laughs> do that. I break completely. It's it's hard enough. You don't so, want to do
0: that. So I found the book to be uh, a challenge at times, but I found that this this back and forthness um, it kind of keeps the pace going. So so um, I felt like even though I was struggling, that at least I was struggling in very small chunks. Um,
1: it does I, I actually sometimes suggest that if you don't feel like you've got a hundred percent of it, you should really go back and read that chapter over again. It's, I have gone back. <laughs> yeah. it, is, it is definitely um, it, there are very few words in the book, um, and there's no harm in re- re-reading, rereading it, and maybe even taking some notes as you're going along.
0: So earlier, I said something like that the claim uh, was a type. And Dan said, "No, it's a proof," and, and that maybe gets at the heart of the matter, doesn't it?
1: No, it's
2: a theorem. The oh, it's a theorem. a theorem. Well, it's it's not a theorem until you prove it, right? But it's it's, it's, a, it's a do, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's a statement. Yeah, I, I get pedantic about these things. It's a occupational. That's fine.
1: <laughs> <laughs> that's fine. So,
2: so we do have a, a type a, a way of doing type annotations in Pi, which is that expression called the. Hmm. Um, and I, and the reason we called it the was because we figured if Idris and Common Lisp both call their type description operator the then we're then we're in good company.
0: Um, okay, nice. But
2: and and maybe yeah. So I guess that that's how we do our our type annotations. Um, maybe that's why you were objecting to it being called type annotation before, Dan. I don't know.
1: Yes, okay. absolutely. I figured if we want to talk about it, we should talk about what we have.
0: Um. So the, the correspondence between, between types and theorems, I guess, is...
1: Uh, Curry-Howard isomorphism, you're talking about now?
0: I, I am, but I was hoping to get one of you to maybe expand on it because I, I know nothing, and uh, <laughs> I have some experts here. I suspect you to know some things.
1: Well, but basically, wow. in the metaphor, it's t- two names and one concept. So theorem and type is basically one name and program and proof are one concept. And of course it's the proof of the program, the proof of the type or the, um, sorry, proof of the theorem or, um, program of, uh, the type. So you have both of them. And as I said, that's called the Curry Howard
0: isomorphism where you can, uh,
1: Get a lot of mileage out of this.
0: the The interesting thing I that I'm learning from this book, I guess, is that some of my some of my skills that I've developed for for writing software, I guess, c- can translate via this isomorphism to 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 do math. I guess.
1: Yeah, real math. It's the first time I'd ever seen real math um, that didn't come with an awful lot of um, bells and whistles. This is very direct, very simple, and, and our assumption is that you've had some experience um, with using a language like Scheme or Racket or Lisp or any of the sort of the parenthesized guys, and you're very comfortable with recursion. And I'm sure you you read that far where you discovered you the comfort with recursion is necessary, but... Uh, I won't go into any more details than that.
2: (laughs) So, as far as Curry-Howard goes, I think there's something important, Dan, that a lot of people gloss over, and that I didn't hear you say. So, Curry-Howard correspondence was is really, you know, so Curry and Howard both observed this uh, that not only do statements written in intuitionistic logic map directly to types and Proofs written in intuitionistic logic map directly to programs in the simply type lambda calculus, but also that normalizing expressions in simply type lambda calculus corresponds to cut elimination, which is to say that. So, one, one of the most important results we have in logic is that any proof written using the cut rule, which is the rule that allows you to sort of make local assumptions can be simplified to a proof that doesn't use the cut rule, but that still proves the same thing. And it turns out that that process of normalizing proofs is the same process of normalizing programs. So not only do we have that every proof corresponds to a program, but also that writing our proofs out and pushing them down into the most direct form corresponds to running our programs until they're done. And that's a very important aspect of it.
1: Yeah, Yeah, I think that... You covered it a lot better than I did, uh, truthfully. But um, it's still the it's still the it's still the two boxes I put up in my class. Yeah, yeah it's the two Do boxes, but
2: but the but it's it's more than just the two boxes. It's also that they behave yeah. the same way, which I think is right. what's really Absolutely. cool about that. And and we have similar correspondences. Like, uh, so you had Phil Wadler on your show recently, and he talked quite a lot about this for a lot mm-hmm. of other logics as well. And so I think anyone who's really interested in this should go listen to that interview. You know, so we, we have that um that, uh, a sort of a more interesting version of intuitionistic logic where you can talk about individuals that gives you dependent types because you're able to have statements that aren't just sort of a and b but also predicates about some object like you could say that two numbers are equal or that um or you know that if yeah, two numbers are equal. That's a, that's a good example. Like you have to be able to talk about the individual numbers or you could or you can say things like for all numbers n and m adding n to m is equal to adding m to n. And these sorts of things saying like for all and exists and and having individual things you're talking about that's really what you get from adding dependent types to the mix. But if you add if you want to get other logics, you can also figure out how to run those as programs. And that's really really cool. I think.
0: So you mentioned normalization, and something that was interesting to me in the book was um, this. Um, well, this concept of normalization. I wonder if you could describe what it is, and like with an example, and and how it relates to evaluation. Sure.
2: So, nor so when when you have types in a language like Pi, the types don't just sort of classify expressions, saying you know. This one is a number or this one is a list of numbers, or this one is a function where you give it a number and it gives you back a list of numbers. They also tell you which of the things they describe are the same as which other things they describe. So you know that 5 plus eight is the same natural number as 13. And you know that appending the list containing 1, two3 to the list containing 4 5 six is the same as the list containing one, two, three, four, five six and when you when you you can you can look at at these sort of groups of things that are the same as each other as sort of being buckets and you know you, you take your you take all of your lists of numbers and you put them into the buckets you know divide them up such that each one is grouped with the ones that it is the same as and then in for each of these buckets we have sort of a, a simplest most direct Representative that we can pick out of that bucket, and a way to find that representative given anything in there. And that's what we call the normal form. So it's sort of we, we pick one representative from each collection of things that are the same as each other. And because we have a way of finding that representative for anything in the bucket, we can tell whether two things are in the same bucket by finding their normal forms. And it turns out that a, a good way to pick those normal forms is to do all your computation until it's all done. Um, Although some of the types in Pi, they have some additional rules that are more than just running the program. So for example, uh, lambda x f of x is the same function as just f on its own. So in order to find the normal forms of functions, we have to sort of wrap them in a maximal number of lambdas until they get figured out. And the, the unit type which we call uh, trivial in Pi because it corresponds to sort of a trivial theorem or a trivial statement that's really easy to prove. Since it's only got one constructor, then we just go ahead and say, well, everything in it's the same as everything else, whether or not it's that constructor, because eventually it would be. And so to find the normal form of something with the with the unit type, you just take the unit constructor and those sorts of things. But most types, you just run the program until it's done, and then you have the normal form. But running the program until it's done also includes like going in and underneath lambdas and running those, which makes it extra fun.
1: I thought you were going to skip the uh, the Ada long, but I guess you didn't. <laughs> <laughs> so,
2: okay. so, so so dances Ada long. That's that process of putting all of sort of the maximum number of lambdas around the around the functions. For those not in the know. Um, and actually, the reason why we put in all of these ETA rules was that at uh, Indiana University, they were kind enough to let us test out a draft of our book on a class of students.
1: <laughs>
2: um, we didn't even have to go through an yes. IRB for that.
1: Uh, I think, but there have been two two additional sure, ones, sure. So...
2: but during that semester, we uh, discovered certain things. Like one of them is that it's much friendlier to students to give them a test suite that their program should pass, and it... One one way to make it much easier to run these tests is if you have a lot of those rules that tell you, like in particular, the rule for the function, which says you know you have to put all the lambdas on the outside to find the normal form. The rule for a unit, which says they're all the same, and the rule for the empty type, which says they're all the same too, because you're never going to get one anyway. Um, doing that allowed us to actually write much simpler test suites that we could give them to have their programs pass because the computer does more work making things be the same as each other and the human does less work, which is always a good thing.
0: I want to get back to the sameness, but uh, so at some point in my, before we do that, while I was working through this book, I got stuck at some point. And then, so I went into GitHub and I searched for like files with the .py type as the extension. And I found somebody, I guess, who probably took this course you're talking about and their exercises. And actually it helped me out a lot to, uh, to see this, uh, so thank you to uh, I wrote this down here uh, Jacob Adley uh, whose exercises helped me understand the like Jacob who Adley
1: I don't I don't know this person I yeah I don't know but thank you Jacob if
2: if you did take our class and we forgot you I'm very
0: sorry <laughs> um. So on the normalization points to to make sure I understand like uh, in the very in the very simple in a, in a simple example you could have like plus two two and four and you're saying like four four is the normal form but but four is also an evaluation of of this yeah. statement so mm-hmm. there's some sort of um, it, somehow equality has been linked to evaluation in, in a way I've, I've, I'm not familiar with I guess because so.
2: I think that there's, when you're, when you're making a logic and you want to be able to talk about programs, you have sort of two ways you can do it. One of them is you can write up all the ways that programs compute and then say to the person writing the proof, you get to now demonstrate how the, how these programs give you the right answer by sitting down and saying, well, now I'm going to use this rule and I'm going to do a beta reduction here. I'm going to do a uh, you know, uh, I'm going to rewrite by the definition of plus right here, I'm going to unfold the definition of times to see that it's actually a loop that does a bunch of pluses over here, and then I'm going to reduce here. Or you can rig up your logic so that everything automatically respects computation, and then have the computer do all of that work. And one of the wonderful things about type theory that we can thank Pema to Live for is Coming up with this judgmental structure, or coming up with this way of putting the logic together, where the computation is something that can just happen in the background without a human having to go apply all the steps one at a time, and that's why sameness has sameness. In, the notion of sameness in the type theory is probably the most important thing. Like when 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 people are first learning, I know when I first learned it, at least, I had this idea. Like, well, let's see. Um, like, I thought the important thing was like, what types do we have and what programs have those types? But in fact, it's much more important to think about which programs are the same as which other programs and why that is the case. Um, be- and, and the other part just kind of falls out from that. And that's because it's it allows you to, to know when computation is going to happen. And it allows you to know when the computer is going to do the work and when the com- computer is not going to do the work. So you have to do the work yourself and that sort of thing.
0: Yeah, it's I, I don't think I've fully wrapped my head around it. it, it it's interesting. Uh, also like the sameness, like I described this example with, with two plus two, but actually the sameness applies to whole uh, functions. Yeah, every everything.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: So one one way to think about it is that when you're let's say you're writing a type checker, the type checker's got to sort of answer two questions, at least. And one of those questions is how do I find the type for this expression? But it also has to be able to answer the question: When are two types the same type, right? Because I may expect I may expect one type, and I get that the expression has some other type. How do I compare those two types? And for something like simply typing them lambda calculus, the way you compare them is just you know recur over them and check that the structure is identical. But mm-hmm. when your types get to contain programs. Then checking for sameness of types means checking for sameness of programs
0: as well. Ah, I, I see now. Yeah. So you have to. That has to be.
2: It's so like say I say I write a program. Uh, I write a function, and it and it needs to as its argument. I need to pass it, you know, four pieces of cake. Let's say I've got a type that represents pieces of cake, right? So I pass it like chocolate, and I pass it rainbow, and I pass it double chocolate, and I pass it quadruple chocolate.
0: I like your consistency of food. <laughs> keeping all the examples on food, <laughs>
2: and uh, then, but then I actually what I end up pass. So, so I think like that's what I want to do. But my my cakes are coming from two different places. So you know I've got one source of two pieces of cake, which is my chocolate and my rainbow, and I've got another source of two pieces of cake, which is my double chocolate and my quadruple chocolate. And so I'm going to call a function that will append these which gives me something that has 2 plus 2 pieces of cake in it. But my function needs 4 pieces of cake. And when we look at that, we think, well, well, of course those are the same type, because 2 plus 2 is the same as 4. But the, you know, the type checker needs to be built in a way that it can understand that, which means that the logic or the type system itself needs to be built in such a way that 2 plus 2 and 4 are the same thing. And there's some systems out there where I'd have to sit down and sort of manually prove that 2 plus 2 and 4 are the same before I could pass that result of putting those lists together into my function. But in this system, we don't have to because two plus two and four are just the same as each other without any work needing to be done by the user.
0: And in, in py you have, um, something called evidence. Is, is this related? Um, so evidence,
2: evidence is, just a, a program. Yeah. So why evidence is the reason why a thing is true. Um, So we are sort of, we wrote the book from the perspective of someone doing intuitionistic logic. And if we're doing that style of logic, then it's not the case that everything is true or false. There are some things that we don't yet know whether are true or false. You know, the, there are open problems about which we just, you know, they're, they're not true and they're not false until somebody proves that they're true or false by providing evidence that they are true or evidence that they are false and hopefully not both evidence that they are true and evidence that they are false because then somebody's made a real big mistake
1: <laughs> yes i'd say <laughs>
0: <laughs> so i guess I, uh see this is my fault for skipping ahead cuz i might have misunderstood the evidence
1: especially in chapter 8 you gotta read that one really carefully
2: so so we can when we when we define what it means to be even in in type theory we do that by saying what counts as evidence of evenness okay and so one way to say what counts as evidence of evenness is to say well a number is even if we can cut it directly in half without anything left over in other words no cr- no crumbs yeah <laughs> <laughs> so if if we if, let's say we want to we want to provide evidence that 4 is even well that evidence is the number 2, because doubling 2 gets us 4. And if we want evidence that 108 is even, that evidence is the number 54, along with some evidence that doubling 54 gets us 108, which is what we wanted. And we don't have evidence that 1 is even, because there isn't any number that doubling it gives you 1. So the way you define a new concept or a new a new predicate, you know, a predicate is like a, a a statement with a hole in it that you fill out with an object to get a, a complete statement. The way we define that is we is we do it precisely by stating what counts as evidence for that statement.
0: So if I if I were, maybe I should just finish reading the book. <laughs> <laughs> if <laughs>
1: you can call us back, you <laughs> know.
0: <laughs> I'm really enjoying the book. It's stretching my mind. I'm finding it a challenge. That's my that's my summary it's of definitely
2: it. Definitely a challenge. <laughs> Music to my ears.
0: <laughs> so, like, if I were to if I were to want to write out a uh, something a, a proof that that like the square root of two is irrational is that something that can be done in Pi?
2: It would take a fair bit of effort, but I, th- I so so. I don't want to I don't want to say yes cuz I haven't done it. Um I think nor have I. I think that in principle you could probably do it. Um but at the when you start getting to more complicated things, then I think it would be better to use a system that does more of the work for you. So I would use I, I this is where I would stop using pi and I would go write it in Coq or Agda or Idris or one of these systems. We are trying in our book to help people get the more sort of the philosophical ideas or the underlying ideas behind dependent types uh, rather than to give you a practical tool. Although in theory, I think you can do this probably. And if you can't, then we could change the language a little bit and make it so you could.
1: Yeah, I'm hoping that people will, you know, pick up the implementation and say, oh, I'd like to have streams in the language or something or uh, other other types that we don't have. And all of a sudden they will see, oh, now I've got it. I got the types because I understand how the rest of the system works in terms of the internals. And um, then they would be able to enlarge their definition of pi. And hopefully they would share that uh, with others.
2: But yes, that that is the kind of thing that that could be done in in languages like Pi.
0: And the the intent here, I mean, isn't that right? So if I understand, the intent is to present a very small language so that people can understand this core. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm.
2: Absolutely. And the core of Pi looks very much like the core of something like Cocker, or Idris. The difference, really, there's there's sort of one really important difference, which is that. Pi comes with a fixed collection of data types sort of installed in the factory. And if you want more, you have to open it up and add your own. Whereas those other languages allow you to extend the collection of data types. And we didn't add that feature, or we we did add it actually at one point, and I ripped it out again because we wanted the implementation to be small and understandable. But other than that, it's it's basically the same kind of system.
0: I wanted to find out what the definition of one of these... uh... Like nat is I don't know how you pronounce these things. That's good enough. and uh, i I was looking for like a prelude, but there's no um, it's built into the language, kind of like in in Haskell, like if you want to go find if
2: if isn't really defined anywhere.
0: yeah
1: well there but, but that's not a hundred percent accurate. Uh, in appendix B, you can read uh, the inference rules which describe the implementation. So that gives you a little bit more material to, to stare at to give you a sense of what is going on.
2: But it's not the case that inNet is the kind of thing that you could sit down and define your own version of. You can define a function that works just like inNet, except it'll be a little bit noisier because it'll need more arguments. That's true. Um, and one reason one one thing we really tried to work hard to do with Pi was make it so that programs in it were short even though the implementation was very simple. And lots of these little core type theories like Pi um, end up being very verbose to write programs in. But being verbose to write programs in isn't going to work when you have to fit them in half of a piece of smaller-than-usual paper. (laughs) So... (laughs)
0: Um, (laughs) is that a good thing or a bad thing are the constraints uh i
2: think that the constraints were useful here they they led to what it led to was a a language which had some built-in things where the implementation uses a technique called bidirectional type checking which um i i think people interested in the in and how these implementations work can go read my tutorial that i've made um and and it uses that to avoid having the user have to write quite as much stuff down, while at the same time not needing any unification, which is one of the spots where implementations of dependent types can get complicated.
0: So I think now we understand kind of the context of the language. Like it's not, I'm not going to write a web server in this. This is a, a tool to teach us um, teach us about this type system and, yeah. and how it works. And to,
2: and to teach you about the the way to think about these sorts of type systems, which will hopefully make it, easier to learn the
1: industrial strength ones when you're done. Yeah, I think that, that characterizes our, our goal completely. We want students to really work through it and understand it, and then they can move on to the industrial ones.
0: After my interview with uh, with Philip Wadler, I was wondering about uh, with dependent types, Like it seems like, have we reintroduced like undecidability if types can if if types and values are the same thing? Uh, so,
2: when you say und-
0: undecidability, do you mean undecidability of type checking? Um, my question may not be coherent, which is perfectly possible.
2: That's okay. Let's let's work it out.
0: Phil was telling me this story about you know there was paradoxes and one way to to remove these paradoxes was to remove, like, self-reflexivity.
1: I don't know. We, we are consistent, so that, does, that doesn't come well, up. Dan, I should say, we do not have a proof that
2: our, our language is, is completely is without true. paradox. Although we've done all the standard things that one does to avoid it, and I'm pretty sure. I, I'd, I'd bet a decent amount of money that at least the idea is, if modulo, maybe there's a bug left. Uh, there,
1: there could be definitely be bugs, but a uh, modulo that
2: right so th- i so the the origin of of type theory goes back to this uh, paradox of having a set that contains all sets that do not contain themselves mm-hmm. and right also known that-
1: as the barber
2: paradox yes by uh, bertram russell yeah russell's paradox and so the the way that russell's type theory gets around this is by saying that every set doesn't get to refer to things willy-nilly, it gets it, it it gets to refer to sort of things that are smaller than it. Right, so in a set of sort of type 0 only gets to refer to ordinary things and not to other sets. A set of type 1 gets to refer to sets of type 0 and ordinary things. Or and by refer to I mean contain. You know, a set of type 2 gets to contain sets of type 1, sets of type 0, and so forth. And then this paradox goes away because it doesn't even make sense to ask the question of whether the set contains itself.
0: So then if, I guess my question is if we're saying like, can't types refer to themselves in, in this world or?
2: So no, actually. And that's a very good question. So in in the very first version of dependent type theory that Per uh, cooked up, you actually did have a type which classified all the types or described all of the types, including itself. And, uh, Girard came along and, and showed that based on an earlier system he'd made, which had a feature like that, that he showed to be inconsistent. He showed that Martin Luther's early system was also inconsistent for exactly that very reason. So what we do in, in, in Pi is we have a type that describes most other types, but not itself and also not types that contain itself. So we have this type U, which is the universe, and NAT, the type of natural numbers, is part of the universe. Atom, the type of atoms, is in the universe. You know, list of nat is in the universe. But u itself is not. And neither is list of u or functions that take u as an argument and, or return u, and these sorts of things. Oh, and and so And we just have this one universe type because that's all we need in order to teach the lessons in the little typer. Um, The industrial strength systems that I was talking about earlier, they all have infinitely many universe types where each of them talks about the ones that are smaller than itself. So you have Universe 0, which talks about things like NAT, Universe 1, which talks about things like Universe 0 and NAT, and so on and so forth. Uh, And We had that in early version of Pi, and then we ran a little test with all of the homework assignments from our students and with all of the code in the book. And we found out that nobody ever actually used anything more than one universe. So we just <laughs> ripped the rest out.
1: And yeah, there's also a sort of a folklore theorem that you never need more than five un- levels of universes. Yeah. Where, where, yeah, I think,
2: Oh, someone was saying that they'd gone and checked sort of every proof ever done in new Pearl, which is a, another implementation of type theory, which is sort of very unique and very different than many of the other ones. And it was, yeah they'd only ever use like five or seven universes or something like that so maybe
0: infinitely many is
2: too many I'm not sure it has a nice <laughs> it has a nice simplicity to it
0: so uh one thing that i I found challenging i guess in in this pi language is um uh, just recursion is is a bit more uh involved than I'm used to is that uh <laughs> there's
1: uh- there, there is—you're not allowed to use recursion. I think I use that right? No. Hey Dan, no. why aren't you allowed to use recursion? Because you're not allowed to use recursion. <laughs> yeah, but but why not? Because you're not allowed to. Yeah.
2: <laughs> so uh, it, it it if you want your programs to correspond to proofs, then direct uses of actual recursion, where something refers to itself, corresponds to circular reasoning.
1: And that's not good enough. <laughs> That's the biggest shock for me, incidentally, that uh, there has to be a way around recursion on absolutely all the time. There's no ifs ands or buts about it.
0: So it ends up looking like recursion, but you just have to you're just working down a natural number.
1: Yeah, one of the things about the industrial strength ones is that they allow recursion, but only special kinds of recursion, um, usually using a pattern language. Um, but we've, we've, we opted out of that because we really wanted people to think hard about things that took away, you know, where you, we have taken away recursion so that you really have to get into the nitty gritty details.
2: And I think that in order to, for this discussion to make perfect sense, there's something we should probably clarify. Um, so when we've got our, our programming language, uh, pedant hat on, then the term recursion has a very specific meaning. Which is that it means that, some, that something that you're defining or something that you're writing is able to refer to itself directly. Mm. Um, and so in order to do that in something like Coq or Agda or Idris, then there's a, a check that happens in the implementation of the language, and it makes sure that every time you're calling a function recursively, every time it's you know invoking itself, it's doing so on a smaller input, and then it makes sure that all the inputs are finite in size, and thus, if you're going down a a finite number of steps, you'll eventually hit the bottom, and then it's okay. Because at the bottom, you'll have something that isn't self-justifying or that isn't a reference to itself.
1: Back in uh, 74, that was the driving force that I used for teaching recursion. I actually thought it, recursion was really cool. <laughs> yeah. Now I can't use it.
2: <laughs> so in in, in in those languages, you do have recursion, but it has to be recursion that lives up to certain checks to make sure that it's okay to do, that it's always going to be safe. Because the problem of self-reference, like a self-referential argument, like the one I had with Dan just a moment ago, mm-hmm. um, is only a problem when the program falls into an infinite loop that sits there doing nothing except heating up your room. like so so uh, you know a circular argument corresponds to an, an infinite loop that does nothing. And if you rule out those infinite loops that do nothing, you're also ruling out the circular arguments. And in pi, in order to make this um, what can I say in order to make the implementation simpler and in order what and also which I think is even more important, in order to make the definition of the language correspond more closely to some of the literature that you have on dependent types and also to some of the implementations so the the style of recursion that we have in pi is, is the style used in lean which i've been really remiss in not mentioning because lean is also a great system another dependently typed language from microsoft research and if and and this system is and and this way of formulating things is nice where you know where you have the a few built-in ways of doing recursion, you know at least one for each finite data type. Um, it's wonderful because you're able to have very simple rules that describe when the recursion is acceptable. So in languages that allow recursion, you have you know you're you're always going to have it you know because of because it's impossible to tell whether an arbitrary program falls into an infinite loop spinning there doing nothing. You instead get conservative approximations. And those conservative approximations, in order to allow you to write more useful programs, get more and more complicated over time. You know, like oh, we can allow this. Oh, we can allow this. Oh, we can allow this. And you have to be very careful to get it exactly right and still be useful. Whereas the version with the eliminators, like we use in Pi, and like they use in Lean, and like Epigram used behind the scenes, that's nice because it's the the rules saying like when is something that has a recursive behavior acceptable are very very simple.
1: You 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 haven't you haven't mentioned yet about totality. Oh yeah, of functions that I think is relevant in this point. Do you yeah. want to say a little bit more about that, David?
2: Sure. Yeah. So, a function is, uh, you know, it's we've got the domain, we've got the range, and it's a function if you know every element of the domain is paired up with exactly one element of the range, and it's a total function if all of them are, you know, every single thing. Like the function doesn't get to say nope. It doesn't get to sit there spinning its wheels, but every input you give it, it'll always give you back an output. Mm-hmm. And because we're dealing with programs, you know, we want to get back that output in finite time. And finite time isn't a very strong guarantee. I mean, you can easily, in a language like Pi, you can write a program that, you know, will take until you're old and gray to give back an answer, if not until your great, great, great grandchildren are old and gray.
1: Yeah, I mean, after all, the... well, we do have Ackerman in the book.
2: Yeah. Yeah, you can write very, very slow programs that take a very long time, even in a total language. <laughs> um, but but the important thing is that this correspondence between programs and proofs is is a truth with modification. Um, you know, we well, we we don't have a, a correspondence between any old program and any old proof. What we have is a correspondence between. Total functional programs and intuitionistic proofs. And then other logics also have these correspondences, but the sort of the traditional Curry Howard correspondence is yeah. You know, intuitionistic proofs are those that don't make use of non-constructive reasoning proofs. So we can have, you know, we're we're not able to make use of like the principle of the excluded middle, which lets us or we're not allowed to make use of, you know, double negation elimination. Where, if you, you, where you go from not not a to just a, things like that, because those correspond to things that aren't sort of directly representable in a type lambda calculus. Um, and this is a really long, deep thing, and you can get a lot of those principles by adding things like continuations to your language, which is really fun. But for purposes of what we're doing here, um, we need to have the total functions on the one side, because, you know, if, well, a, a function may not be total in a couple of ways. One is that it, it might, for certain inputs, just say, nah, I'm not going to be defined here." Um, and in that case, then you know, our, we've, our proof doesn't work because functions are the way we prove a for all statement, right? So we might say, like, you know, for all even numbers, adding one to that number it gets you an odd number. Mm-hmm. That'll be a function where you give it a number, you give it evidence that the number is even, and it gives you back evidence that one greater than that number was odd. And if it just like didn't work for, you know twenty four for some reason, then we'd have a problem. <laughs> so it's gotta it's gotta cover all of the possible inputs. But also, you know, if 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 the case for twenty four just sort of sat there spinning its loop by saying, well, hey, if I'm gonna check whether twenty five is odd, you know, I'm gonna do that by checking whether twenty four is even again first, then that would also be an unsatisfactory proof. Or I'd say it wouldn't be a proof. It, it wouldn't, wouldn't be. be evidence. It simply wouldn't be. Yeah. yeah. So in order for all of our programs to correspond to proofs in Pi, we make sure that you can only write total functions. And these elimination forms, like the in NAT that you were talking about earlier, those allow you to make sure both that you're covering all the possible NATs and that any recursion you do is controlled in such a way that recursive calls are all happening on a one on one smaller number.
1: If we allowed recursion. <laughs>
2: Yes. Well, I mean the behavior acts recursive, right? Yeah.
0: Yeah. To so. me it feels like recursion because like um I don't know, I don't when like you know I'm programming in Scala day to day and I don't tend to write like direct recursion where I'm calling myself. I tend to use like a fold or something and the arguments are are similar, right? You you end up giving it a a natural number and like you need to give it a function that returns the next type, I think. I'm trying to remember.
2: So for in that or let's take in the list because we're talking about folds and most people are more used to thinking about folds in terms of lists rather than in terms of numbers. Mhm. Although the the underlying idea is essentially the same idea. So when you're when you're doing a fold on a list
1: is that a oh, fold r or fold l?
2: Let's go for
1: r here. Okay, that's what I thought. And I'll
2: try to keep them straight cuz I always mess them up. But I'm <laughs> Uh, you know my, my usual way of thinking, like do I want to use fold l or fold r here? Is I'll always sort of like, well, I'll try one. If it doesn't work, I'll do the other one, or I'll do some sort of little test to make sure which one it is, because my brain just isn't wired to remember those. But um, but yeah, so in when we're doing when we're doing using this rec list operator, which we have, which is the the non dependently typed fold, then we give it uh, a value to return when the list is the empty list. Mm-hmm. We give it something that takes the head of a list and the tail of a list, and the result of doing the fold over the rest of the list, and gives us back a new output.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And then, by doing those at each step, we get down to the right. We finally, you know, it'll it'll do the step, do the step, do the step until it hits the base case for the empty list. Um, the dependently typed version of that takes one additional argument, which is what we call the motive. Or we don't call it, you know, that that's what
1: it's called. Well, this way uh, well, you're talking about induction now.
2: Right? Yeah. Yes. Okay. And so dependently typed recur dependently typed fold is induction. The motive explains what the type is for in terms of the list that you're recurring over. Which means that the type at each step could be a little bit different. Um so for instance, if we wanted to check if we wanted to write a proof that appending the empty list to any old list gives you back that same list, then the motive is going to be, you know, lambda x's append empty list x's is equal to x's. Mm -hmm. And then when we do that for the base case, we then apply the motive to the empty list to figure out what the type of the base case is, which is going to be that empty list append empty list is equal to empty list. And then for the step, we're going to um, we're going to apply it to one sort of unknown list to find out the type of the result of the rest of the recursion, and then apply it to sticking the the extra element onto that to get the type for the result that we need, and we get that back. Um, and so then by combining these at each step, you get the relationship between the resulting type and the list that you're looking at right now is maintained appropriately. Um, and so the, the real difference between these this recursion operator and the typical fold R is that it takes a couple more arguments, and that or it takes another argument, which is sort of the tail of the list. You're not usually having that one included as you go, but putting it here makes life easier and you can get the other one out of this one as well.
0: So I really liked the book. Thanks. Um I'm going to I'm going to keep working on it. Like I, I have found it I'm uh, I'm going to make it through it. I, I, I'm going to try. <laughs> <laughs> I hope
1: so. You might yeah. mention how many pages it is so that people understand what you mean when I say <laughs> I'm going to make it through it.
0: <laughs> I'm exaggerating here, but I did I did get the little schemer and the little typer and, and I think the little typer is twice as, as long. But I think there's a, a lot of appendix. Yeah, yeah, there's a fair amount. Um, yeah, we wanted to
2: include the source code to Pi in the back of the book so that people could have an easier time understanding and playing with the implementation. But you know, just like you don't put the Scheme compiler in the back of the Scheme book, then it it just it was too big. So we tried to do the next best thing, which was give a mathematical description of the language and then some text explaining how to read the math, because that ends up being a lot shorter than the
1: code. And probably for the people who want to know just exactly what's in the language um that that appendix b is is pretty useful if you
2: have the right background, and otherwise we did our best explaining it so that you could figure it out,
1: but we try to give you the background as as well yeah. in that section, yeah, so hopefully we came pretty close
0: yeah and there's there's something interesting on the back of the book here where it says um that you were trying to do something not practical or rigorous but beautiful yeah what, what did you guys mean by that? Yes.
1: that's Well, there are these other systems, Idris, etc., you know, the ones we keep mentioning, and they are practical. That is also
2: a truth with modifications. They are practical for the right kinds of people in the right kinds of situations, yeah, and yeah, hopefully yes. someday they will be practical for more people in more situations. Yes. I'm just saying this because I, I, I lurk on the Idris mailing list a lot, and if a bunch of people show up and start saying, the great Dan wow. Friedman said this was practical, but I'm having a difficult time writing writing a brand new web browser and writing an operating system in it then well there is that of course there we are we are moving toward practicality in more domains, but they are still research software
1: right that that's for sure, but we didn't try that we we tried to make it so that you would understand pretty much what the excitement is about with respect to dependent types um I, I'd like to tell a little story, if I may. Um, when um, I had just finished a, a book called Little Prover with Carl Eastland, um, I had sent it to my friend uh, Adam Folzer. And um, I got an email from him as soon as he got it, and he said, so what's your next book going to be about, next little book? And I said, well, I've seen an awful lot of excitement about dependent types. And um, he said, don't move. What, what do you mean, don't move? <laughs> <laughs> so I'm thinking to myself, if I want a glass of water, I can't get it or something. So um, uh, he sent me a letter and, and to David at the same time, um, introducing us. And that afternoon, we decided to, to write the book. So that was a nice little story, and I, I, I would I would be uncomfortable if we did not mention Adam's yes. Adam's involve, Adam's involvement. He he deserves he
2: deserves a lot the credit that accrues, though not the blame, depending on how you none feel about it. None about.
1: of the blame, yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah. So I knew Adam because I was an intern at the time at Galois, which is where I'm working right now, and he worked there at the time, and so uh, we met each other that way.
0: Dan, are you, are you a convert now? Like you mentioned at the beginning, you know, types, maybe not your favorite always? But-
1: well, I, I'm, I usually think in terms of the structure of the problem. And sometimes the structure of the problem is not as friendly with Hindley Milner. And, um, and I kind of don't care as long as the people who are reading the books that I'm writing can understand what we're trying to say with whatever tricks we come up with. Sometimes the types are a perfectly good choice, but sometimes they aren't. It's just that simple. We only have so many pages. We only have so many. The size of programs can only be a certain size. And as long as the language is communicating as clear, clearly as possible what's going on, then I, I don't think it's necessary. That's how I feel. When it it is necessary, like in the little MLR with Matthias Felheisen, um, sure, that's a good time to do it. And even in a little Java, a few patterns, we ended up using types. But by and large, um, it's the ideas behind the problem that matter to me the most. And if my co-author on one of the little books doesn't see any need for the types, and I don't see any need for the types, then I think we can get the same concepts across. And then if you're going to be writing a program uh, in a type language, it should be relatively easy because we are very conscious of the types as we're thinking about how we're explaining the ideas.
2: Not all types need be checked by machine.
1: <laughs> That's a good way to rephrase it. I like that, David. <laughs> I
0: stole that from Matthias.
1: Oh, Okay. <laughs>
0: All right, guys. Well, thank you so much for your time. Uh, the book's great. I recommend people uh, check it out. And thank you very much for having us on here and also for
2: putting in so much effort to read through the book.
1: <laughs> well, just keep trying. <laughs> You'll be fine. And if just, remember I may insert- I, just remember what I said about chapter eight. Read it very carefully.
2: And if I may insert a one little plug... Oh yeah, I had a talk at uh, Strange Loop recently where we had a demo of Pi and the language used in the book and sort of our explanatory style. So if you want to get a little preview of how things work, then you can go find that. It's on YouTube, and you know if you're because I know forty bucks is a lot of money for a lot of people, and if you aren't, you know, sure whether or not you want to invest that in the book, um, you know, i we've got, there's libraries, but also you can go on YouTube and check that out, and maybe it'll make you sort of be able to make a more informed decision.
0: All right, that was the interview. I'd like to thank the many people who promoted the last episode with Wade Waldron on Twitter, especially the Code Maverick, who has mentioned the show in a half a dozen tweets, most of which are in Spanish, but I'm gonna assume that he's saying nice things. I was also recently at the Scale by the Bay conference in San Francisco, and the John DeGo's functional programming training. Uh, Let me just say that both were amazing. There were so many interesting talks at Scale by the Bay. It was a bit of an overload, which, when it comes to conferences, I think is really a good thing. Then I followed the conference by doing the John DeGose training, which was great. I interviewed him back in episode nine, and taking a four day training session with him was a great experience. Um, It was a bit exhausting, and actually, I still haven't completed all of the provided uh, exercises but I learned a lot and I would recommend uh, the training to anyone who wants to learn about functional programming, uh, especially using Scala. All right, using the Pi language. So the little typer uses um, this custom built language as was discussed called Pi. Um, So here is my overview for working through the book. First of all, you wanna download Dr. Racket, then install the uh, Pi language. And then uh, at the top of your file, you just have to put like uh, pound lang pie. Easy enough. Now, as you're working through the book, my first tip what is to, to read deeply and methodically. So the book is in kind of a, a two-column dialogue format. And what you want to do as you read it is try to guess the answer um, that's in the right column as you go through. And if you can't guess the answer, that's fine. But make sure that you understand the answer. And I mean, if you can't understand the answer, what I often did was just, you know, progress a little bit more through the book, and and either it will get more clear or less clear uh, very quickly. Um, and if it's less clear, then you should backtrack. And as you heard from the authors, rereading chapters is recommended. Uh, the book is uh, it has a very conversational tone, but it, but I would say it's dense. So the other thing is running the code. So as you work through the book, there are snippets of code that are in. Uh, solid. They're outlined in a solid box. So you want to type all those into Dr. Racket. You can use lowercase words in place of the Greek letters like lambda and pi. And then what I found helpful was just playing with the code. So trying to run things through the REPL uh, to get a feel about, uh, you know, what we were defining and trying to write my own variations on it and making sure that it compiled and that I could run it. I also found it useful to write up the types in a language I was more familiar with. In the comments above the claim. There is also a function called check same that is useful for testing if the results of a function call have the, you know, if the results of a function call have a certain value. So I found that quite useful for for getting my intuition. I would, you know, type out a function from the book. I would then try running it in the REPL with some arguments and then kind of solidify that knowledge. I would put in a uh, check same, you know, this internet call equals this result. All right. So those are my tips. Thank you uh, for listening to the podcast this far. Um, If you enjoyed it, you know, uh, spread the word, tell your friends.